Good day, good night, good morning, and good afternoon. You're on the other side of midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. I'm your host, Jonathan Womack. I'm sitting in for Richard while he's on leave. And we have a special guest tonight, David Sarita, who was here a few weeks ago with a fascinating show. And I first learned of David oh, six years ago, I believe it was, when I saw his analysis of the NASA tether incident, which you can find on YouTube, and it's well worth your watch. I was so glad to see it. I told him I you know, stood out of my chair and was clapping out loud because... Being an astral traveler, uh, on the other side, when you're energy, you can travel very quickly from point A to point B across the galaxy. And he was showing how the aliens have figured out the trick to turn energy into matter and then change it, it back. Because uh, energy and matter, of course, are facets of one force. I call it the source. So I was so glad that um, David did this because, you know, it takes some bravery uh, to come out when a lot of people mock you uh, for your, your beliefs or your research. So I was so glad to see that video. And uh, it also shows how these aliens are able to be all around the planet, all around the solar system without us even knowing that they're there. We're clueless. Well, most of us are clueless that they're even there, but they're everywhere, and this is how they do it. They just uh, up their frequency so fast that our science and our senses cannot detect them. So that's where I first learned of David, and since then he's developed some other very excellent technologies, and you can check it out on his website. Um, I'd like to read some of David's bio here. David Sarita was born in Edmonton, Alberta, August 21st, 1961. He was born into a family of five boys, being the second eldest. His father, Dr. Lynn Sarita, PhD in, uh, in educational psychology from UC Berkeley, California, was dedicated to his children's spiritual growth. His influence on David is one of the greatest driving forces behind what he does. His mother, Linda Trafford, was a carpenter, artist, and a family lawyer in California. And since the year 1999, <clears throat> David has appeared on hundreds of radio shows, such as Coast to Coast with Art Bell and George Nury, Jimmy Church, John B. Wells, Shirley MacLaine, Alan Eisenberg, Alan Handelman, and so many more. He has also appeared on nearly every news station on TV, CNN, Anderson Cooper, Fox News, History Channel, Ancient Aliens, Peter Jennings, back in the day, uh, Seen as Believing, and much more. He has written self-published books such as Evidence, The Case for NASA UFOs, Singularity, Differentials, Face to Face with Jesus Christ, and jointly with his wife, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, and God's Great Pyramid, his co-produced, directed, edited, and scored documentary films, Evidence, the Case for NASA UFOs, uh, with Dan Aykroyd, Unplugged on UFOs, The Voice, Quantum Communication, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, Hope for Humanity, 
etc. His films have had millions of views from DVDs, TV, and YouTube. He has produced and scored music for meditation, frequencies for tuning consciousness. He and his wife have a meditation practice and consciousness course series on audio and video called Quantum Regenesis. David and Crystal Sarita have developed a company with natural technology developed both to imprint frequencies and vibrations into jewelry and crystals. He also designs and makes harmonic field transmitters and wands. So with that said, uh, let's welcome David. How are you doing tonight, David? Great to be here, Jonathan. Um, I'm excited because there's, there's so much I want to say about what we're going to talk about tonight. And I've been working on this all winter, making thousands of calculations on stars. And the literally probably over 2000 calculations I've done in the last, you know, the last winter. How many man hours do you think you put into this project? How many what? How many man hours? How much time? Oh, There's no way to know because, you know, when you, when you make a discovery, you're usually standing on previous research of not only yourself, but others, right? Like, so you're, you think of, you know, who inspired you, what inspired you, and how many hours are in, in the process just to get to the point where you could even have this thought, right? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, what, what inspired me initially is the failure in radio astronomy to yield positive results for ET contact. And it's kind of funny to me that, you know, at, at SETI, you know, Seth Shostak is sitting over there and they have all these radio telescopes and they, they don't have a confirmation of any extraterrestrial intelligence that uses radio waves the way they use radio waves. So they think, you know, some of the newest hypotheses are we must be the only ones in the universe because there's nobody communicating using radio waves the way we use them instead of thinking maybe the way we're using them is wrong. Mm-hmm. And and I, I looked at an experiment I did here myself. I got... You know, I got a couple of gyroscopes and a really good electromagnetic frequency meter um, called the TF2. And I started spinning these gyroscopes, which have no iron in them. And you see they're spinning at their surface at 20,000 RPMs, which comes to about 72 miles an hour. So they're spinning way than the Earth itself, which the Earth itself spins over a thousand miles an hour on the surface at the equator and my little gyroscope which it looks like it's spinning really fast because it's just a small surface area and at 72 mile an hour surface area i'm getting very large voltages coming off of it in the field and i'm getting an electric field which you can measure in volts per meter squared and that means that there is a type of wave that we've completely missed. So wasn't it Faraday that was that? Wasn't it Faraday that did this experiment first back maybe in the fifties? Oh yeah, Faraday. Spent... Yep. Go ahead. Exactly, Faraday. But see, it's the way you you creatively analyze data, right? So you say, 
we can say that a star can transmit a wavelength of light that actually migrates throughout the universe at what we think is the speed of light. And then we say that the Earth has a frequency, according to Tesla and Schumann, of 7.83 hertz fundamental. That means it, it, can, it can shift into several different frequencies, the Earth, but that it has a fundamental frequency. But, but they're not measuring the electric charge that's running right on the skin of the surface of the Earth. So if I take the circumference of the Earth, the speed of light in feet divided by the circumference of the Earth in, in feet, I get about seven point, just under 7.5 waves per second. That's incredibly close to the Schumann resonance of 7.83 hertz, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not exactly the same, and that's because the theory is that lightning strikes are driving the charge and that's not what's driving the charge what's driving the charge is the earth is spinning the spin and yeah it's the spin is is producing an electric charge whether whether the surface is made of a conductor or a semiconductor it doesn't matter it's it's carrying a charge and that means because this the speed of light divided by the wavelength is the fundamental formula for calculating electromagnetic frequencies it means that every spinning star and every spinning planet not only has its own fundamental frequency right at the surface, but it, it will give off um, octave pulses known as fractals. And this is where it gets really amazing to me because musically, if we look at the Pythagorean, you know, Johann Kepler music scale of today, we take a fundamental frequency, like you can say the A note at 220 hertz, we multiply it by two to get, go the ne next octave up, which is 440 hertz. And some people argue that it should be 432 hertz or it should be, you know, everybody has different theories. About I, I was watching a video on that today about tuning a guitar, um, whether you should do it to 440 or the 432. <laughs> right, or 444. There, there's many theories. And now, if you get a tone generator, and, and I really urge people to do this because this is how I do my testing. Because I'm using a Mac, I use the Black Hat Systems Audio Toolbox. for It's only a $20 piece of software. Or you can use the NCH software on a PC or, or a Mac. And it gives you about you know 13 or 14 tracks. And what you do is you punch in all the frequencies for the, the um, A, B, C, D, F, G, plus the flats and sharps in our music scale. And then you start with the lowest note, and you turn it on, you put your headphones on, then you turn the next note on, then the next note on, and you keep them on. And you'll hear they're out of phase. They're, they're not perfectly tuned to each other. And in fact, if you remove the flats and sharps and you just do A, B, C, D, F, G, you'll notice there's distortion between each interval. Now, if you take the 432 scale, which the numbers are online, it's worse than our scale, than the Pythagorean scale. It has far more distortion. And then if you go to the, what are known as the solfeggio tones, which is not a music scale. Solfeggio's tones don't have any octaves. Um, you'll notice it's, it's better. It's more harmonic in the intervals. Um, but it starts to distort after the fourth note. But what I did years ago 
is using this mathematics of the, the speed of light divided by the wavelength in any unit of measure, you always get pretty much the same number as long as your resolution is very fine and, and what your units you're measuring, your speed of light and your wavelength proportionally. The, I calculated all the electromagnetic frequencies going up and down the Great Pyramid, and I, and I went, oh my God, these are incredible numbers. So what I did is I, I saw the same numbers repeating from kilohertz, then they went to low megahertz and then high megahertz. And the same um, 10 numbers kept repeating, transforming from kilohertz to megahertz and then high megahertz when you get to the capstone of the Great Pyramid. And now this report has come out. I mean, when I tone tested this, what I did is I moved the decimal over because I saw this shifting occurring. And I moved it to the same numbers except for where humans here. And when I tone tested the 10 tones ascending upwards, the intervals were perfectly harmonic. They were so smooth in their transitions, you could hardly tell that there, were, there was any distortion between the notes like there is in our music scale. And you go, oh my God, this is the most perfect music scale in existence, hmm. this 10-tone pyramid scale. And then I decided to use to create a different octave because I realized the Pythagorean octave of times two as a wavelength does not exist anywhere in nature. Any, anyone can tell you everywhere you look in nature, you'll see the golden ratio fractals, you know, whether you're looking at spiraling ferns or seashells or, or galactic spirals, this, this golden ratio fractal spiral exists everywhere. So it, it made more sense to me to use the golden ratio as an octave mm -hmm. than it did the, the traditional times two. So when you go times 1.618, as opposed to times two, it's just a little bit less than times two, which means you're going to get more um, musical tones in a complete set that are in the audible wavelength than you will with the standard music scale. So I did this with the whole Great Pyramid. And it, it didn't matter how many octaves up or down I went, when I retested my octave shift 10 tones, it remained perfect. And I was able to do this 360 times. So imagine as there are 360 degrees in a circle, I was able to tone test 360 tones that fit within the range of the human ear. And that's miraculous because you don't have 360 tones in the Pythorgan um, music scale that will fit within the range of the human ear. You don't have anywhere near that many. You're, you're, you're about probably about, you know, 15 to 20% less than that. So then when this news broke, and this just happened. And this was a peer-reviewed paper that a team of Russian scientists were doing experiments with the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And they were transmitting wavelengths at the Great Pyramid and at very specific wavelengths, therefore frequencies. Because a wavelength is a frequency expressed in a different way. So... When they started doing this, the pyramids started to resonate at certain frequencies, and especially at certain wavelength frequencies, the area of the king and queen's chamber, and then eventually 
the outer skin of the Great Pyramid about two-thirds of the way up the top when they're at a wavelength of 230 meters, approximately. This is approximately. The whole upper sides of the Great Pyramid explode in light and start resonating and emitting. And they're, they're not able, with the wavelength frequencies they're using, to get the capstone to light up. And I know exactly why that is because they're not high enough in their frequencies. But what they're proving is exactly what I set forward. What I set forward is so different than what previous researchers had set forward in the Great Pyramid. And that was, they, they looked at the acoustical resonances inside the king and queen's chamber. So they looked at how that space resonated while they emitted certain frequencies in the chamber walls. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same thing as, as seeing the Great Pyramid because it's made out of, a, you know, three layers of semiconductive material. You have nuclear ionizing radiation granite in the core. It's been proven. Um, Robert Temple wrote about this in Egyptian Dawn where they went in with um, um, nuclear radiation meters and they found the core masonry granite, the Aswan Egyptian granite, was radioactive. And the inner limestone is conductive while the outer limestone is is insulating. Is that right? right? So so what that does when you like for when you build a transistor, you the first transistors were made of 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 what are called NPN and PNP materials. So negative positive negative and positive negative positive because they layer materials, uh, semiconductive and conductive materials. And, and that's on a tiny scale how the transistor was born. But on a large scale, the pyramid is layered in these three different materials. Um, the core granite and then the two different types of limestone on the outer walls. So that makes it a massive, sem- um, like a transistor on a and massive then scale. You have the granite underneath that is drawing the ions up from the ground, uh, from the limestone aquifer. Right. Right, because you have the, you have the pulsing, um, you know, that, that was part of um, Chris Dunn's theory of the pulses of the water and, be, and the, the stone being physio, an electric response to those pulses would start to give off a charge. But those pulses would be very low frequency. What this study shows, at 230 meters, you're, you're so close to this magic number, I mean, a millimeter away from it, of 1.5 megahertz and and that number lights up the you know almost i'm looking at the image right now i wish we could get this image on the screen but it's it's very clear to me that what these numbers represent in fact i i did the math on this so what you do so if you're if your wavelength emitted is in meters you take the speed of light in meters divided by the wavelength in meters, and therefore you get your frequency. So you can see the frequencies they're using in this study. It goes all the way up to 330 meters, 260 meters, 230 meters, 200 meters. In fact, at at their um, longer wavelengths, what starts to happen is, it, it looks like here at 333 meters, the core area of the king and queen's chamber starts to resonate. 
And then when they go to 285 meters and then 230 meters, see, when the, me when the wavelength gets smaller, the frequency goes up. When the wavelength gets longer, the frequency goes down. Inverse so proportion. we're dealing just around, we're ever so close to 1.111 megahertz in, in, the, in the lowest frequencies they're using. And at 1.111 megahertz, um, their wavelengths are ever so close to the 1111 number. And that's the number in the bottom of my pyramid music scale. But I moved the decimal over. So you go to 111.1 hertz. So, so that's my bottom number in my pyramid music scale, the 1111 number, right? And they're ever so close to 1.111 megahertz where the pyramid is really resonating in its core masonry in this study. So they're not, they're, I mean, they're using a very um, non-precise movement of one frequency to the next. Like when you're tuning a radio dial, you're tuning it ever so finely from one station to the next. So if you're listening to FM radio, FM means frequency modulation. So they pulse modulate the, the music or the voices on the, the frequencies, whereas AM is amplitude modulation. So you're pulse modulating the amplitude, the amplitude. Of, of the wave, right? So this, this data on the pyramid is basically showing that this thing is way beyond a piezoelectric response to pulsing water waves underneath, as Chris Dunn suggested. It's, it's responding to an impetus of electromagnetic waves that are right around one, just, I mean, they start just below one megahertz. They're a smidgen below one megahertz. And then they start moving up to 1.5 megahertz approximately. Um, I'm looking at, the, I, I did all the calculations on this study. And I go, these are my numbers. I know these numbers because I took the square of the Great Pyramid's four and even eight sides, because there are, there is a subtlety of eight sides in the Great Pyramid. And then I squared each uneven because each, side of the Great Pyramid is a slightly different wave wavelength. So I squared each uneven different, the north side, the south side, the east side, and the west side. I squared each one, and I got this incredible movement of, of energy, like unbelievable. They were only one number off from each other. So I knew that the whole pyramid was oscillating north, south, east, west, north, south, east, west, north, south, east, west, and doing that at the speed of light. So it was an incredibly sophisticated wave set. It wasn't just one frequency. It was four to eight frequencies all together and oscillating around in this pattern. And so when I converted to a music scale, I didn't know where this was all going to go. But, but where this all goes and where we're, what we're talking about tonight is that temples and that are precise measurements that were given by gods or goddesses from a beyond the earth um, communication are these gods were giving humans instructions to make temples at precise solid wavelengths because they would resonate at very precise frequencies and those precise frequencies would happen to be a perfect fractal of a specific star 
in our in the constellations above us. Yeah, I believe that um, solar systems are engineered, uh, you know, and ahead of time, and it's all laid out like you would a project on Earth or something if you're going to build a power station, or but. I think that they're all uh, they're they're made and uh, they're all designed to work together, and you know optimize various frequencies and how many planets there are affects it. How large you know the gas giants and the sun, see, all these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. See what you're saying. See, the first study I did was to take the speed of light divided by the circumference of all the known nine planets in our solar system. And it turns out every planet's frequency wavelength correspond to one of the five major human brainwaves. And I said, that can't be a coincidence. It cannot be a coincidence that we dream in theta, which is the frequency, the fundamental frequency of Earth. So we dream at the frequency of our own planet. So what does that mean? Does the fact that, you know, Mars is, is on the alpha, you know, beta band wavelength, Mercury is just a smidgen under 20 hertz, um, which, you know, it, it, it's, you know, when Mercury goes retrograde, how they say people lose their focus. And mm. the 20 hertz band of the human brain is high focus. It's, it's where the brain starts to get super coherent. Right. And it's also right where we cognitively start hearing. So I did this study and I said, this is not an accident. It's very likely that all of the five brainwave states are being received through electrical inductance by the human brain. So our brains are in a way are the muses of the nine planets and, and the amplitudes can shift depending on the position of that planet in relationship to Earth. And we receive those frequencies at the speed of light. But then I took it another step further. And because NASA was able and astronomers were able to get precise radius measurements on most of the known stars in the night sky, based on the radius, you can calculate the circumference of the star. And then you take the speed of light divided by the circumference of the star and you get the frequency of at the equator of that star but then you fractal it using the golden ratio. And as you fractal it about 50 times, that star gets to be about the size of, you know, the, the wavelength of a basketball. <laughs> so, so you can, then you go another wavelength up and, you know, you're getting into the size of the measurements that the God of the Old Testament, for example, gave these precise measurements. Now, this, this is what I'm going to tell you now is so astounding and so mind blowing that God told the, the ancient Hebrews to build the Ark of the Covenant at two and a half cubits. Now, a cubit in the book of Ezekiel, where an angel appears with a six cubit staff, he defines a cubit from God as being a cubit in a hand breadth, which means it's a royal cubit. It's not a standard cubit. And God doesn't use standard cubits. That's the common builder's cubit. So this is a huge mistake that a lot of archaeologists make, is that they're, they think that because the, it just says cubit, that it means the standard cubit. But no, it's a royal cubit because Ezekiel tells us that. So 
Ezekiel instructs, is instructed by the angel, the prophet Ezekiel, through God, to rebuild the Holy of Holies, which is the home of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the cubic building in Solomon's temple, which is later built, that has to be 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Now, if you, if you do what I've done, I spent years, because you asked how many man hours do I have in this, I had to go through every theory on every cubit there was, and you look at the the rulers that were found in Egypt ranged between 20.6 and 20.86 inches per cubit. Well, we go, have to take a cubit break, David. Okay, perfect. Uh, hold that thought. We'll be back. You are on the other side of midnight with Richard C. Hoagland, and we will return after this short break. side of midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. The title of tonight's show is The Key to Star Communication, The Music of Fractals. And we're here with David Sarita. And uh, for our listeners out there, if you'd like to call in with a question or a related anecdote, uh, our number is 917-889-8802. And we'll get you on the air. And uh, before we went to the break, David was talking about uh, the pyramids and also about the Ark of the Covenant and how these frequencies relate to the Earth and to human brains and the solar system and the universe, I would say. So um, you want to go back to the, uh, the qubit explanation, David, and pick it up yeah, from there? Yeah, see, what we're doing is we're trying to find the perfect measurement 
so that we can calculate the perfect measurement uh, wavelength frequency and then determine whether the Great Pyramid and or very sacred temples like the Holy of Holies are a perfect octave and therefore stargate frequency to a very specific star or star group. And I found that to be true, incredibly true, incredibly accurate. The accuracy was beyond 99.8% when I arrived at my conclusion. So you have this measurement that this angel is giving the, the prophet Ezekiel to build the Holy of Holies at 20 by 20 by 20 cubits. And that's the same measurement that was given in the building of, of King Solomon, of Solomon's temple, to make the Holy of Holies. And today you see in Islam, the Kaaba, the, the, the sacred stone, is housed in this cubic tent, which is supposed to be their version of the Holy of Holies. But their measurement is incorrect because they're not using the right cubit. Now, how do I know this is the right cubit? Because when you, when you finally arrive at the right cubit, and you realize it's consistent, whereas the Egyptian measuring rods were not consistent. They measured between 20.6 and 20.86 inches per cubit, which means that the Egyptians themselves didn't know the absolute cubit. But when you look at the Great Pyramid itself, Peter Lemizuri wrote a book and published it in 1976 called The Great Pyramid Decoded, he found in over 14 places in the Great Pyramid, 20, the 41.21 inches equaled two royal cubits or two proper you know, cubits. Therefore, half of that would have to be the most accurate cubit because it's reliable. It keeps producing the same number, the same number, the same number, 41.21 inches, 41.21 inches. And, and here's what's first astounding about 41.21 is when you take the Holy of Holies on your calculator at 20 cubits and you use the 41, use half of 41.21 inches is a single cubit is 20.605 inches per proper cubit. So that's well within the range of the two Egyptian rulers, right? 20.6 and 20.86. So 20.605 is reliable because it's, it's repeated every single time in 14 to 15 places in the Great Pyramid. So if I take 20.605 times the measurement of the Holy of Holies, which is 20 cubits, I got 4121. I got those magic numbers that I started with in the Great Pyramid. But I got 412.1 inches for my measurement on the Holy of Holies. And what's amazing about that is that's a great pyramid number. But wait a minute. This is the Hebrew God. How could the Hebrew God be using a number that's all over the great pyramid? Right? Hmm. It doesn't make any sense. But it does if you, if you understand that the, the, the source of the Hebrew God is actually the, the true builder and architect of the great pyramid. And you're going to see this over and over and over again once you use the correct royal cubit inch. Because when you take the 412.1 inches and convert it to feet, it comes to almost precisely 34.34 feet, and therefore 17.17 feet is the radius of the Holy of Holies.
Now, this is mind-blowing because guess how wide the king and queen's chamber are in the Great Pyramid? Their width is precisely 17.17 feet, which is the radius of the Holy of Holies. And the length of the king's chamber is 412.1 inches, 34.34 feet, which is the, the, the full dimension of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's Temple. So what is the king's chamber doing mm. at this exact wavelength of the Holy of Holies? And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is stored and the the staffs, the 12 staffs of the 12 tribes of Israel, the staff yeah. of Aaron, the staff of Moses. Uh, the same engineer. Uh, it's the same engineer. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it gets even more amazing because then I take my wife and my kids to Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. Do you know where that is? Mm -hmm. It's so close to, to um, you know, Chaco Canyon is in the northwest part of the state. It's in the upper northwest part of the state and it's it's the first actual civilization city in the ancient um first nations you know native american indian world in fact it's it was a city that was built by the early pueblo and the or original point of the hopi and and many of the Pueblo tribes were originally living at Chaco Canyon. And at Chaco Canyon, they built these circular temples that are, are quite deep, and they're very precisely measured um, diameter. So I go and, in And is it on the uh, Earth grid? What's that? Is Chaco Canyon, do you know if it's located at a, a vertices, you know, the crisscrossing... Uh, the Earth grid, I, I find that uh, a number of these um, sites are located on grid points at the intersections. Well, there's no doubt it's, it's on a grid point. I mean, I've measured all the way from Solomon's Temple all the way across to the United States, which, which runs, I mean, many of these, these sacred temple sites, they intersect all the way across the planet within, within several degrees of each other, but they're they're all in the same basic swath. Stonehenge. Yeah, Stonehenge. Right? Well, yeah. Stonehenge is at 51 degrees, which is, okay, now this is the master number. So when you take the proper royal cubit, which is 20.605, and God said to make the Ark of the Covenant two and a half cubits, you come to 51.5125 inches. And the 51.5125 appears everywhere. If you take the height of Solomon's temple with the 20.605 inch cubit, it's 51.5125 feet. If you take the length of Noah's Ark, not the Ark of the Covenant, Noah's Ark, the supposed boat, it's 515.125 feet if you use the 20.605 inch cubit. And what's amazing is this, art, you know, this independent archaeologist, Ron Wyatt, discovers the skeletal remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. And he pulls out a measuring tape and measures it at 515 feet, which is the number I'm looking for, because he wouldn't see the 0.125 with his measuring tape. And when he got 515 feet, people didn't believe it was Noah's Ark because they were, they were looking at a smaller cubit. I'm like, what do you mean? This is, this is proof that Noah's Ark was built with the exact number that I'm telling you. The same engineer once again. Right? It's the same engineer as the Great Pyramid, because... 51.51 is Great Pyramid Angle. That's the slope angle of the pyramid, mm. right? 
So it doesn't matter. You look at all of God's measurements that God gave the prophets. It's all the same numbers. Holy of Holies number, great king's chamber, queen's chamber. Queen's chamber is the radius of the Holy of Holies. The king's chamber width is the radius of the Holy of Holies. The king's chamber length is the full Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is in Solomon's temple. Why would Solomon's temple have the same measurement as the king's chamber? You see, so you, when you finally arrive at all this, you arrive at this dimension of the Holy of Holies, and I ask myself, okay, now this is where it gets really amazing. You look up in the night sky, and you see all of these stars that NASA knows the, the proper radius for. And I don't calculate stars unless the radius is, is as good as 99% um, or better, sometimes 98%. I will never use anything at 97% or less. And, but there's a lot of stars that NASA knows the proper radius for. So I take each star, and you name it, it it's Arcturus, or whether it's um, Pegasus, or you know, Sirius A and B, Sir, I mean, Canis Major, Canis Minor, the, the, the Big Dipper, the Minor Dipper, um, Cassiopeia. It doesn't matter which star, I've calculated all of them. i calculated all of their octaves, over 50 octaves per star. Now, are these and, similar to our, uh, in size, to our sun, or are some of them much larger? All of them, well, many of them are dwarf the size of our sun. Like, if you look at um, the theory that there's a connection by Robert Bavall to the Orion, the three stars of Orion, like, those stars are so big. They're so supermassive compared to our sun. Like Beetlejuice. They, or something oh, like yeah, that. but they, when you scale them down and you scale their octaves down, None of them fit inside of the Holy of Holies. They, they pass it. And so I'm looking like, you know, what is the Holy of Holies measurement? Which star will, will perfectly octave down to the Holy of Holies? And it, I'm, going through, you know, I'm going through over 50 stars that I've calculated 2,000 um, intervals for among these stars. And, and, and every one is a miss. Everyone's a miss. And then finally I come to Sirius A and I go, oh, my God, this is like, 98.9% accurate to be a perfect octave of the Holy of Holies to be a perfect octave of Sirius A. And okay. then I come to Vega, which, and Vega was the star featured in, in Carl Sagan's book, um, Contact, which became the movie with Jodie Foster. And the book is far better than the movie once you read the book. And I go, oh my God, this is even more perfect. This is 99.9% perfect, perfect octave of Vega, the Holy of Holies is. And, and because Vega was our North Star, it's kind of like the gateway star to Earth. Like if you were an extraterrestrial and, and, you, and you really understand that every star, see, this is the other thing. Every star is a different frequency because there are different wavelengths. So it's just like if you're tuning on the FM dial, you would never tune into two radio stations at the same frequency, right? Well, if, if two radio stations were at the same frequency, you would get both of them at the same time. But the universe made every single star a slightly different wavelength. So therefore, they're all isolated by their own frequencies and their own octaves of their base frequencies. And those octaves, when you stack them on top of each other in a tone generator, 
which I gave on your website right now. There's a sample of what Sirius A would sound like with seven tones slowly turning each one on, turning each one on in series, perfectly harmonic octaves using the golden ratio, no distortion between the notes. And I don't what believe this is all by accident. I think these um, are engineered just the way um, Noah's Ark was. They engineer the star for a particular frequency and even the placement of the stars, you know, our even solar the arrangement, system, the arrangement, yes. This is what the creator did. So, so here we are using radio astronomy, and we don't use any frequencies that are the octaves of the star that we're trying to receive a message from or send a message to, and we're wondering why there's no freaking message. There's nobody out there. Kind of silly. Just say, like, like, why wouldn't it make sense to use the wavelength of the star and its, and its progressive octaves. See, if you stack octaves on top of each other in a single signal, it creates a pyramidal shape because each interval, each higher frequency interval is a smaller wavelength, smaller wavelength. So it creates a cone or it creates a, a pyramidal from the base frequency to the, to the highest octave. You get this razor-focused beam and then when you transmit, and this is what I did, and you transmit a, a message to that star using those frequencies as a harmonic, you get an answer. You get an incredible answer. And I've done this hundreds of times since the year um, 2010. I've done this hundreds of times, and I've had so many contacts, nobody would believe me. The only way people are going to believe me that this is how they're doing it is you got, they got to do it themselves. So there we are, we spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and we send out radio frequencies, and we send out messages on radio frequencies into space. Like, for example, like when um, we sent the Beatles song, it was, the, the song was Across the Universe by the Beatles. And we sent it to Polaris, the North Star. This was done years ago. This was in my film, um, The Voice. So, but we send it on a frequency that's not proportional to that star. Like, that star won't attract that signal. In fact, to do a faster than light signaling, you have to be at the harmonic of your target. And that's how radio works on Earth. So if we want to communicate, your receiver has to be the negative charge um, opposite of the positive. The positive frequency transmits the song or the voice. And the negative at the same frequency receives it, right? So they're, they're perfectly proportional. So if, if the star, um, the North Star Polaris, and, and there's like three major stars in the Polaris system, and we know their radius perfectly, I have all the frequencies and all the numbers for Polaris. And if we sent a message to Polaris at their frequencies, they would have received it a long time ago. But we don't do that. We send it out at some completely abject, meaningless frequency, and there's no answer. We send this beautiful Beatles song called Across the Universe from Polaris. You can Google that, when NASA actually did that. And I think it was done at the moment the, the guru, Maharishi, had passed and left his body. This, this whole thing was arranged by the Beatles and they and NASA and they did this really spectacular thing across the universe and 
nothing, of course. There's no response. Now, I can tell you that Nikola Tesla, and I was the director of the Tesla Foundation in Los Angeles and spoke in the United States Congress under the Tesla Foundation on Bogdan Magwitch's nuclear fusion in 1994. I can tell you that Nikola Tesla was looking at a, a, a whole different level of radio astronomy at his Pikes Peak lab in in um, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in the late 1800s, and he said he was receiving intelligent messages on a faster than light function of very very long wavelengths, and so essentially a star, the wavelength of a star at its equator is of extremely long wavelengths. It's nowhere near one wave a second. It's way less than a single wave a second. But then that star pulses and fractals into higher and higher and higher intervals and, and creates a cone of frequencies that by the time, see, at, the, at this moment in time, every star in, in the visible universe, even visible by telescopes, have already shared their light with each other. So our sun has received the light from Sirius, that was really easy because it's not very far away, eight point, eight point something light years away from us, from Alpha Centauri A and B. You know, only you know four point two, four point three light years away from us. Pleiades, four hundred and forty, you know, ish light years away. So every single star has already shared their light with each other. So we're all, all the stars are bonded by these tenuous, super super skinny you know, beams of light. So we're all in the shared presence already. We're already connected. All the starlight from every star of every galaxy has already shared itself. We've received it. They received ours. So we're already bonded. We already have this bond. And and my theory says that just sending out meaningless frequencies because we like the idea that the frequency is a high frequency and we're going to send out a message and we're going to point it in the direction of where a star, you know, the original position of the star is today and see if we can make contact 45 years from now, they might receive the, the light message and then they might send it back to us. I mean, th this is crazy. This yeah. is crazy. And very and, quaint. And it's manipulated hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. And they and with absolute failure, they have not changed their position on how to send and receive radio signals. But Tesla was doing this. He was doing this years ago. And there's a German scientist, and there's a link on your site to this incredible article that I found where this, this researcher does the same thing that Tesla was doing. And his name is Kurt Diedrich, Germany. And he starts looking at these very, very long wavelengths where you have to use incredible filters to filter out the noise. And you read through this long article and you come to this place where you see his type, signal type two. And in this, I'll read this to you. It says, a signal pattern which appears day and night at irregular time intervals. The signal contains many harmonics and lasts several minutes. Notice that it contains many harmonics as opposed to a single frequency. The waveform in the frequency is changing during the presence of the signals. All received signals of this type are identical no matter what time, day, or year it is. There seems to be two independent sources sometimes interfering with each other. 
One source is a little bit lower in its frequency than the other one. Played back at 160 times the original speeds, it sounds very strange, like a human voice saying hello very slowly. <laughs> so what if somebody's trying to say hello? Because Tesla said the exact same thing. He was looking at these same type of waves as this German researcher. He was and receiving he said, alien messages, wasn't he? And he said he was receiving alien messages. And nobody understands what Tesla meant, except for this German researcher does it. And somebody might be, have been trying to say hello like for thousands of years, and nobody answers because we're looking in the totally wrong, you know, to totally wrong thinking that, you know, we just need to listen to all these radio noises coming from the stars and see if somebody sends us a message. And because they're going to do it the same way we do it. You know, with the speed of light, and it's going to take however many light years away that star is, and it would have to be one whopping signal, one super massive signal to even get here, because it's going to encounter resistance and distortion along the way. If it's a weak signal, it'll never get here. Well, and see, plus yeah. there's alien there's aliens parked all over the Earth. That's <laughs> like. Right, you know, they're they're waiting for a hello, and there's you know a gazillion aliens around Earth, so it's pretty oh, no, funny. That's the funnier part. So, when you look at this new story, because when you're introducing me, and my theory years ago in the NASA UFOs is when you watch the way these UFOs operate, the way they move, turn at ninety degrees at high speed, and we were talking last time on the show about this incoming weapon that was chasing the space shuttle columbia and it turns at 90 degrees at incredible speed like you know at least 40 50,000 miles an hour and you can't turn at that speed at that sharp of an angle without the g-forces destroying the pilot and the craft well just recently in people magazine the story of the navy pilots chasing the ufos off the coast of uh, baja california they, were, they had previously mentioned that the UFOs dropped from above 80,000 feet and stopped at sea level in a matter of seconds. But now they have a very precise measurement that the movement from 80,000 feet to sea level happened in 0 0.78 or 79 seconds. So I calculated that to come to over 60,000 miles an hour. Now... How do you, first of all, our fastest missiles, the ICBMs, do 18,000 miles an hour. Meteors do 20 to 35, maybe 40,000 miles an hour. So we have this UFO doing 60,000 miles an hour and stops on a dime at the top of the sea. Now, the G-forces on that, if you had mass, if your craft was in a state of matter, as we call matter, like a rock or or a metal ship, it would implode in on itself and crush any biological life form. And so therefore, my theory says that if you cancel out all of the, the mass gravity proportion to zero, zero point the energy, the spaceship and the pilot don't weigh anything. In fact, they're not even as light as a raindrop. They don't weigh anything. Then therefore, you can you can maneuver like that and not experience G-forces or any destruction. And then they materialize, they slow their frequency down, and then they, they're able to materialize into a more solid state 
of of interaction. And that's and, why you see that oscillation on the Tether Incident right. video, yes. That's why you always see the oscillations. In a real piece of UFO footage, you're going to see the oscillations. In fact, um, I did the, when I did my film, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs, I met this guy in Venice, California. His name was Pat Uskert, and I actually made that guy, um, made him famous by putting his footage of this UFO he got, and we put it into Photoshop, and you could see these, these wave patterns oscillating around this metallic structure of this craft. And it happened to be the same year, 2004, as the Navy pilots who chased the UFOs off the coast of Baja, California, that are all over the, you know, in the world press right now. And, and, of course, you have the Navy pilots on the East Coast saying that they were chasing UFOs for two years, and they were seeing them out there almost every single day. And the, the characteristics of flight are such that there's no way, there's no way that they are functioning with a type of propulsion system and knowing the g-forces of the type of propulsion systems we use on pilots it's funny to me when people in the press say well it could be anything and i'm like no it can't be anything let's do process of elimination on everything that moves and can anything move from eighty thousand feet to sea level in 0 0.78 seconds and and which is over sixty thousand miles an hour can anything do that and stop on a dime can a turkey do that can a can it you know I love this press when they say, well, it could be anything. You can't say that. It can't be anything because nothing can do that. Yeah. So when we come to the, the, the whole hypothesis that our physics in propulsion and radio communications can't accept that the UFO phenomenon is real and the ET presence is real, yeah. The, the only thing we can do is start getting creative and trying, tinkering with new ideas. And I've actually done this. I, I can tell you one experience I had even recently where I took the frequencies of the star Merope, which is one of the stars in Pleiades constellation, 440 some odd light years away. And I magnetically pulsed um, my sleeping area with with a total of 10 wavelengths, frequencies in series to that star. And it was well, so powerful. Let me hold you there. Um, yeah. Let's keep our audience in suspense yeah. for a few more minutes as to the outcome of this experiment. And I also want to ask you about um, the home of souls, because I think your research uh, is related to that too. So we're going to go ahead and take a short break here. You are listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland, and we will be back shortly.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. <laughs>